If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text this morning will be from verse 10 through verse 17. And before I read the text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. And gracious Father, we come in the name of Christ seeking your favor, enlightenment, and Lord, instruction. Oh Lord, as we lay ourselves out before you, we pray that you would bring this word to bear upon our consciences, that our most intimate person would be judged by its truth. Lord, come to us as our Father in Christ's name. Instruct us. Lord, cleanse us where we find ourselves in sin. Give us the grace of repentance, Lord, that we might walk in you, walk in Christ in righteousness, and that we might be built up as the body of Christ, that we might, Lord, be a healthy body that we might be a strong building and a faithful bride. And we ask this in the sweet name of Christ. Amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 10. Hear now the word of the living God. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any of for Christ, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would, be, would not be made void. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, beloved, if you have taken the time to read the letter of 1 Corinthians and possibly even 2 Corinthians, you would see clearly that it's a church in decline. It's a church in a backslidden condition. If we are to use the three analogies that Paul uses to describe the church, we would understand it that it's a body that is suffering from an infection. It's a house that is suffering decay, needs repair. The infection needs healing. 
as a bride suffering from its arrogance, her arrogance, her narcissism, the value that she sees of herself is far exaggerated and unbecoming of the body of Christ. And Paul begins in verse 10 after the niceties of those first nine verses. Now Paul really does begin heating up the argument and the rebuke. This morning as we, what I wanna do is work generally through these verses and then I want to bring two applications, two important applications to us to consider certainly um, as we have to contend with the very things that Paul is teaching this church when he wrote this letter. Now, beloved, we see in verse 10 that it contains the purpose statement. In verse 10, Paul gives us the very reason he is writing this letter. It's not the origin of it. That comes from Chloe's report or the members of Chloe's family, their, their report to Paul. That's the origin of this purpose, but this is the purpose. This is what Paul is desiring to see accomplished in the body, in the church there at Corinth that's struggling. And there are several things in, these first, in this first verse that we are to take note of that we mentioned last week and that we're not going to open up in every detail this morning, but just still mentioning them for memory's sake so that we don't forget them, but that we use them as we consider our own situation and our own condition as a body. Again, beloved, reminding all of us that it's the word of God that judges us. It's the word of God that is brought to bear upon us, the ministry here, the membership here, the conscience here, the intent. All of those things that we're to be about and to be faithful in, the word of God comes and, well, gives examination. Amen. We need it. We all need it. What child doesn't benefit from a loving father watching over them? Our mother, who is able to guard, who is able to direct, who is able to instruct that child in character and manners, isolating them or at least insulating them from the trials or the tribulations, the, the schemes and the, the pitfalls of the world. Well, that's what the word of God does with us as we sit up under it as a body. It comes and examines us and it shows us where our weaknesses are. It shows us where the cracks are in the wall. It shows us the, the, the infections that are beginning uh, or maybe in its very beginning that we can come and address and deal with. Obviously, you know, well, the remedy is repentance. The same thing that a church ought to do is the same thing that an individual must do when we find ourselves, well, in contempt with God's desires. 
in contempt with God's laws, in contempt with his, with his ways, with his purpose, with his ministry. What does the individual do? But repent of those sins and repent of their wicked ways, their evil ways, their contrary ways. And, and again, be reconciled to the Lord, be brought in favor and be brought into conformity to his will because we have repented of our, our own waywardness and now we're brought near to Christ by that repentance and grace and now we're in conformity as we walk together. That's the same thing that the church must do. It is not, it's, it's, it's not something you hear often today, but I have talked to many old ministers, I mean old retired ministers. And, and, and even in their day, it, this is a, a church practice that had sort of fallen by the wayside, but they had spoken of, of growing up in the church and sitting in church and remembering days of fasting and repentance. Remembering that there were days that their churches fasted and repented when they, when they became aware of certain sins that they were guilty of, that they, they fell on their face before the Lord and they repented of their sins. And of course, the look on your face is, well, when had we ever experienced that? That's the point. I think it is sort of arrogant to think that we would not ever have anything to repent of. But yet, as we look at verse 10, and as Paul lays out this purpose statement, he certainly supports that purpose statement uh, by his apostolic authority. He's the one that is calling or exhorting the church, uh, admonishing the church, uh, rebuking the church. And, and this is no small matter because Paul was an apostle. As Paul has already laid out that he has been called of Christ to minister to the church, the word of God to teach and disciple and to plant churches, to grow churches and to ordain ministers and to see churches become thriving, healthy bodies where Christ's glory is exhibited through the teaching and the preaching ministry of the word and even through the sacrament of baptism and even though it's not mentioned in the text here, but later on in chapter 11, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is why Paul calls himself and other ministers, well, stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul was saying that we are stewards. We did, they don't originate with us, but we steward over them. We utilize them in the way that Christ had intended them to be used, and we do that faithfully according to the grace and the gifts that Christ has given to us. Meaning that Paul says, this is, this is, if it will, listen, your spiritual father, listen to me. 
So that's no small thing. The apostles had authority over the whole church. Paul had the authority to write this letter, even though Paul was not in Corinth. Paul was not the pastor of Corinth at this time. Paul is actually in Ephesus establishing the church there and had been there several years, and he writes the letter to Corinth from Ephesus. And I cannot get over I still see this connection because none of these letters are written in a vacuum of what Paul had to address and deal with at Corinth that it didn't sway him as he was writing the letter to Ephesus and ministering to them. There are so many things that he says to the church at Ephesus that could be solely applied to Corinth, particularly about the church. In fact, let's, I wanna, let's turn to a passage of scripture that might certainly be a connection that we need to see or be at least helpful in broadening our understanding of scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Now in Acts 20, it's a record of Paul's farewell speech. It's his farewell address, if you will, to the elders at Ephesus. The church has been established. There have been elders ordained, and Paul has spent um, the longest amount of time that he's ever spent anywhere there, and now he's leaving them. And I'm not going to read everything, but... It, you make a note to go back and address this later on in your devotion, but let's just look at, at um, verse 25 and following. Paul says, and, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, a couple of things. Now, I, again, what's Paul dealing with at Corinth? He is certainly dealing with the problem of schism. He's dealing with these quarrels that has sprung up within the body. People are dividing over silly things, foolish things, not doctrinal truth. This is not 
uh, text of Scripture that says there's never a time for churches to separate. Now, this is a text that's addressing foolishness. Those things that Satan uses to distract and to destroy churches that have the potential of being very useful and, well, important, if you were, in the preaching of the gospel in the kingdom and world. Corinth was a massive center of culture and politics. Certainly worthy of Satan's attention, don't you think? But he tells them to be on guard. And he tells them that, 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 number one, it's not their church. Verse 25, I mean 28. He says he, that the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It's not your church, elders. It's Christ's church. And this goes to one of my applications that I'll have at the end of the sermon. Men are, the church is not the playground for even the best of men, gifted of men. It's not their playground. It's, it's not for them to do whatever they wish. It is the church of Christ. It's a, church, it, it's a body, it, it, it's an institution, it's an organism that Christ has purchased with his blood. He's the head, the, the pastor is the servant. He's the under shepherd. He says, and I know that after my departure in verse 29, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the far, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice how Paul, Paul had already witnessed this in Corinth. Where were these problems? Well, certainly there was influences from the outside the church, but Notice the quarreling from inside the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. That's who I've benefited from. I've benefited from Paul. Paul's the reason I'm sanctified and as mature as I am. I mean, if you listen to Apollos like I listen to Apollos, you would be way further along in your sanctification. Now, brothers and sisters, this probably does touch most of us because somehow we attribute our spiritual maturity to men. And that is something Paul is forbidding here. Our spiritual maturity comes from Christ. Christ is pleased to use men. Christ is pleased to use men and is ordained using men because he's gifted men. He's called men to the ministry. Christ could have easily put an angel in his pulpit. What doesn't need me? Christ could easily be present in every pulpit if he so desired and preach himself. But he chose not to do that. He chose to call men out of darkness and sin to the kingdom of light and righteousness, give them his spirit, wash them from their sins, gift them and give them all the graces they need and then equip them so that they may in his name minister the word of truth to the people that are also called out of darkness 
cleansed by the Holy Spirit, washed from their sins and called to maturity in Christ. That's the point that Paul, I think, is sort of hitting on is be careful, God. Listen, don't just be watchful for those things outside the church. Make sure you are watching from among yourselves in the church. Listen, if there is one thing that breeds a multitude of sins is arrogance. Pride. I will confess In among the fraternity of ministers, and this, I'm just, this is not a gossip statement. This is not a statement that is for uh, an emotional effect. It's just a truth. Among the fraternity of ministers are some of the biggest egos you'll ever find. I know because I struggle with it myself. I remember being a young Christian and I was part of this organizing group of this evangelistic um, circuit, this, this famous, I'm not going to tell you his name, but he was making the, 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 he made the rounds and, and we had the small church I was in saved up a lot of money to have him come and preach a series of evangelistic sermons at our high school stadium. And I remember I was a young Christian, but it was one of those committees where if you showed that you were breathing, you were going to be on a committee. You know, it was like if you showed any, if you carried a Bible to church, that you, you're the, you need to be on the committee. So they asked me to be on the committee, and I was not really mature enough to go no, but I said, Absolutely. And I remember sitting there in this initial meeting with this evangelist, famous evangelist. And all of the conversation and after the prayer, he asked this question. He said, how many do y'all want saved? Did you hear that? How many do you want to see saved? Now, I was a young Christian, but I remember thinking, (laughs) all of them are, why are we even asking that question? How arrogant to ask such a question. And how deceptive it is to to give the impression that you can save anybody. And the Lord used that in my life to begin shaping me and directing me. Brothers and sisters, and and I I don't want to, I'm not trying to, to throw ill will. I don't know what his motivations were. I don't see his heart. I can only hear his words. But don't you hear a problem in that statement? It's not uncommon. 
It's like if we get this minister, he can fix the church. Brothers and sisters, ministers aren't magicians. They are but servants of the living God. Uh, more about that in a minute. I don't want to spend too much time there. So we see the uh, apostles' authority. Certainly we see the motivation in verse 10. He certainly is calling them to this, to this purpose statement. Well, out of their love for Christ, out of the love of Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle says, and he wants to move them that their motivation for repenting of these schisms and turning back to him, because they had strayed, and turning back to Christ is through love. And that's the only motive any of us can ever have that's right. It's, it's, it's not even in the fear of the Lord that we are to do our spiritual works. It's in the love of Christ. Yes, fear may be involved because the Lord does chasten those whom he loves. And he does it often. And it's always unpleasant. And it's always deserved. And it's, it's always usually painful. And yet, we are to be motivated by our love for Christ. We ought to repent of our sins because we love Christ. We remember what he has paid. We remember the debt he paid. We remember the gifts he's given. We remember the spirit he's bestowed. We remember the truth he has revealed to us. We remember all of these things and it is through the love of Christ that we are ever to repent of our sins. And of course this is the, this is the, the motivation, isn't it, of all of our good works. I, I say this, and, I, and I'm going to move on after this, but you can take it and use it for your devotions later. We have gotten to a place within the modern church that we, it's all about convenience. We judge things by convenience. Is it going to put me out? How much will it put me out? Rather than, is this a way for me to express my love for the Lord? Is this an opportunity for me to, to have the, a moment to express my love for the Lord? If we looked at it that way, we would all be eager to do the good works and to perform our responsibilities, wouldn't we? Rather than judging them by the, the metric of convenience. Well, if it's not convenient, I'm sorry, the Lord's not calling me to that work. And yet, Paul is certainly calling them to repent of their unwarranted allegiances even to these good men that they had sinned by giving a place to these ministers that was never intended to be given to them, that they were now on par with Christ, if not 
surpassing Christ because one of the things that we do well is, well, instead of quoting the scriptures or being students of the word of God, it's much easier to quote Calvin. And almost like we just automatically win the argument. I mean, if I can pull out Calvin, I've just one-upped you. Or Matthew Henry or any others of these really good and sound men of old that Christ used mightily to grow the church up. It's not their fault. It's our fault. The sin in verse 10 also that they need to, that they're guilty of and need to repent of is they're not being like-minded and he expresses it as divisions that you all agree there be no, that you be no divisions among you. These no schisms among you that you need to come to an agreement, but not just stay there. We need to all agree on the same thing. We are not going to be divided. We're not going to fight among ourselves. We're not going to quarrel with one another over these superfluous things, but we are to what? He says, grow up in the same mind and judgment. Now, that's a lot of hard work. And that's what this letter's all about. So we see verse 10 is the purpose statement, and it certainly... Uh, it gives us a, a, a goal for the rest of the letter. But look at verse 10 or verse 11. Verse 11 is the occasion for it. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. So it's not just divisions, but it's, it's the word quarrel in, in when you add it to verse 10 of these divisions, it shows you that they are not good divisions. This idea of quarrel means to be torn apart, to be separated, to be at animosity with each other, to be in contention with. Well, if you don't agree with me, I can't have fellowship with you. I mean, we see this going on culturally, don't we? There can be hardly, listen, look at what disagreement brings. Cancellation. If you don't agree with us, you deserve to lose your job, your children, your wife, your spouse. You don't even deserve to breathe air. Because what do you think happens when a person loses their livelihood? You are, in one sense, beginning to murder them. A man can't pay for a place to live. A woman can't pay for a place to live, can't buy groceries. When you, again, this is, a, this is a rabbit trail. But it's an application because what is cultural Marxism? Separation and division. What's political Marxism? Separation and division. What's spiritual Marxism? Separation and division. Satan has used this technique to destroy churches, to destroy families, and to destroy nations. To divide people up into its various categories, any numerous ways, you, you know what they are, and then destroy from within. And that's exactly what the Lord has allowed us to suffer in this nation because we have turned our backs on him 
because we have given up, the church has by and large given up being the, the body of Christ, being the membership of Christ, is he being the head and we being the bodies. And he being the head means he tells us what to do and that we be a sound temple of the Holy Spirit, spiritual stones knitted and pressed together, fitted for God's work and glory, and a beautiful bride that is faithful to her husband. That's why we see such chaos, such destruction, and and quite frankly, such ugliness. And I don't mean just in manners, plenty of that. But I mean against everything that is, as Paul uses this term later on in the letter, everything that's against decency and order. Satan opposes its chaos. He's the chaos agent. Brothers and sisters, when you're conflicted in your own soul and spirit, you need to seek Christ. That's that's of Satan. Satan is the chaos agent. It is the Lord that gives light, direction, meaning, and purpose, not Satan. Satan perverts and distorts and, 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 and rips asunder those things and causes confusion and questions and everything else. It's not of God. It's of the devil. And that's why Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians and he says this. He says, do you not know that even the devil has his own angels at work? And Paul, I believe, was referring to those super apostles, the ones that demonstrated all of this outward outward glory. And I say that the human rhetoric and, and logic and all of this reason, the sophists, more than likely, it was the sophists because they placed such a high emphasis on the art of speech upon the art of, of literature and speaking and, and rhetoric uh, or the, the uh, uh, logic, if you will, debate. That's the word I was looking for, debate. And, and, and they viewed themselves as powerful because they could persuade people and, and words are powerful. Now, I don't know about you. It, I've gone in as a, Someone who speaks a lot for a living, listening to some of the greatest lectures and speeches, quote, um, given, powerful. But empty related to the wisdom of God. Powerful to move masses, but empty when it comes to the, the spiritual work of God. And, and let, let me just show you this. Turn in, turn to Second uh, Corinthians. Let's find it. It's just a, something that came to my mind. Thirteen. Let's see. 
Okay, look at verse 7. I'm just going to, here's what I'm going to demonstrate. Because the sophists, these philosophers, their whole point was the power was in their, their, their gifts, their abilities. And they're judging the Apostle Paul. And they're trying to turn the people in the, in the church away from Paul to themselves. And so Paul takes the Christian road. Paul says, listen, the power is not in my abilities. The power is in the grace of God. I don't come to you in powerful speech. So let's look at verse 7. I'm going to demonstrate it for you. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that's the Christian position. The, why? Because what's the whole purpose of your life? What's the whole purpose of these distresses and persecutions and weaknesses and all that you have? So that Christ may be exalted in you. That's the purpose. That you may exalt Christ through those weaknesses. Why would the Lord remove those weaknesses? Because Paul, listen, what Paul is saying is, I believed I could minister more profoundly if the Lord would just take this thorn away. I could do more for his namesake. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. My grace is sufficient for you, for you are demonstrating in this thorn, in this weakness, my grace and power. It's about me, Paul. That's what Christ is saying to Paul. It's about me, not you. I grow the church. I'm empowering the church. I'm using your teaching to empower the hearts and lives of men and women. I'm using your teaching. I take the word of God that you speak that only goes as deep as the ears themselves. I take it to the heart, Paul. And I cause that word to be made effectual to my sheep. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that Paul has received a report. And, and I think there's something that we can learn here in verse 11. Certainly, the, the, church, had, the church had become in such a decline, in, in, in such a backslidden condition, that now they are seeking remedy. We've got to do something about this. This is not going away. In fact, it's getting worse. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5 about sexual immorality? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what he's saying is when you let sin in and you let sin go unchecked, what happens to the body? It just begins working through the whole body. That's what happens when when elders or when sessions show favoritism to one family over others. 
We all, the, the church body can see that there are certain people that need to be checked. But because they're close to the session, they're close to the pastor, they go unchecked. And what effect does that have over time to the rest of the families? Well, if they can get away with it, I mean, why, why can't we get away with it? It's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. We talk about this strife, these quarrels. Let's look at some of these verses. Uh, Romans 1 and verse 29. I mean, this, this is the ranking of this sin of strife, right? Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, there's that word, deceit, malice, they are gossips. And of course, that Romans 1 is that list of, of, of moral sins, right? It's the list of sins that, that, that's given to us at the end of Romans 1. Strife is among those sins. And just like disobedient to parents is among those sins, you say, well, I'm not a fornicator. I'm not an adulterer. Uh, I'm not looking at pornography on my computer. Are you angry? Are you contentious? Are you just a hard person to be around? See, that's listed in that. See, what did we just, what just happened? We were all humbled. We were all humbled. The Spirit humbled us, didn't he? The Spirit showed us that in these, in these classifications of sin, strife is among them. And brothers and sisters, how many churches are guilty of this sin? Romans 13, verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Again, look where that sin, look where it's posted. It's not just found in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 3. Paul writes in that chapter, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? What Paul is saying is you're not spiritual at all. You're guilty of being carnal, not like Christians. You're not acting like Christians. You're acting like unbelievers. Now, he's not calling them unbelievers yet, but beloved, we can act like unbelievers. We can be guilty. Why? It's unbefitting. It, listen, part of this world, right, uh, part of this word that Paul is using where he talks about this um, schism and these divisions, it's a word that talks about things that go properly together, like the human body, like the human body. We all know what a human body ought to look like. But, but what happens when we have conjoined twins? You know, what happens when two bodies are birthed and, and they're joined maybe at the head or even at the shoulder? We said, that's abnormal. Why? That's not befitting. Why? Because we know what the normal 
human body is to look like. And what Paul is saying is, listen, this is the Christian spirit-filled mature behavior because when we act and we bring our attitudes, we bring our intentions together, let it all work together in the body and not be at odds with one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 20, Paul writes, he says, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, and he's talking about after the letter, he said, I, I wanna come see you in person. I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what, what you wish, that perhaps there still be strife and jealousy and angry tempers, disputes and slanders, gossip, and arrogance and disturbances among you. Paul says, if I come to you after writing these letters to you of rebuke and correction and admonition, am I still gonna find these things? I think I will. Because I'm not received a good report. And, and, and this is another thing that I think is worth mentioning here. It is not wrong, beloved, to give and go and seek help and remedy. It's not gossip. Chloe's people weren't gossiping. They weren't spreading gossip. They were going to seek the apostles' help in remedying the infection of the church body. You may find yourself in a situation where you have to go to the session, where you need to go to the elders, or you need to go to Presbytery and say, hey, Pastor Stanfield, do you know about this? For we have tried and tried and tried and nothing's happened, but we think you need to go talk to Pastor Stanfield. That's not gossip. For spiritual purposes and for the edification and the building up of the body and for the glory of Christ's name, we take such measures and steps because we want to see that infection killed and remedied. We want to see healing come to the body. And some that's very hard to do. You know, I always like the, the um, principle, the uh, American principle, I think it's biblical too, of being able to face your accusers. You know, that we can't just anonymously just throw things out there and go, oh yeah, he's guilty or she's guilty of this and, and act like, you know, nobody's ever gonna know and then ever be challenged. That's unbiblical and ungodly and devilish. But why it never happens in the church because we say, oh, I really like Pastor Stanfield. I don't wanna, I don't want him to know I ever said anything. I don't want Pastor Stanfield after the conversations we had know these things. Beloved, you don't serve Pastor Stanfield, you serve Christ. Your aim is Christ for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow up in these things. Be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Let's move on. In verse 12, he talks about these he gives the description of how these quarrels are manifesting themselves and we've already addressed it, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And the, he uses this, possibly this is the report that he's received or he's just using this as an example. But in verse 13, these are the two arguments that Paul begins to use to defeat this, this foolishness, this, this schism, this infection, this spiritual infection. 
The first thing Paul says in verse 13 is, has Christ been divided? That's the question he asks. And of course, we know the answer to the question, don't we? We automatically know the answer to the question. Now think about it. Being that church and knowing that I'm against him and he's against me and we're against them and this side against the left side and, and the back against the front and all of these things. Well, when Paul says, well, is Christ divided as you are? We would all be humbled in the dust and go, oh, no, no, no. Is Christ divided from the ministry that the Father's called him to? As reconciler? As judge? Did Christ give the apostles the commandments to teach the church and then act as if those commandments are not important to the growth and maturity of the church, to, to the, the judgment day where all ones stand before the throne of Christ and are judged by what? Well, his word. Is, is Christ divided, beloved? Does Christ call his ministers and then say, you know, these, these guys are, are super well gifted. I'm using them and I, I, I'm just going to, you know, these aren't going to be. Christ doesn't overlook those ministers. What, is he, what do we see Christ doing in the book of Revelation? We find him in those first three chapters doing something. He's walking among the lampstands, the candlesticks. Why? Because the church is the light of the world and that's what that lampstand represents. And those lampstands are in his hands and he walks among them doing what? Discerning the church, judging the church, empowering the church, encouraging the church gifting the church, any of the things that they're, they're, that's that meeting the needs of the church. Christ is walking among his churches and he's tending to them and he's caring for them. Oh, Christ didn't divide it. Does Christ decide to go on vacation and is there ever a second that he is not doing that? The Bible tells us, the scriptures tell us that he has ascended into heaven, that he's taken his place at the right hand of the Father. Is he asleep? Is he taking a vacation from his ministry? No, he's not divided. He's ever fixated upon the role that he's been given of the Father, which is to be the reconciler and the perfecter and the one who calls his church, the one who gifts the church, the one who, who brings the, all of the elect, the church, to its proper completion. They all are going to be made complete in Christ. Let's look at it. Turn to Hebrews It is Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 1. 
It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That's all I wanted you to see there. What is he doing? He's the author of it, and he's the perfecter of it. Your Completed sanctification is not based on the ministry of any man. It's based upon the ministry of Christ. Christ is not divided. And that's an argument that Paul uses to bring a humbling and a shame to the people there and to us too. You know, brothers and sisters, you can be, and I I hate to say it, but I've got to say it for for us to grow up because I'm not disparaging big churches. I'm not disparaging multifaceted ministries. I'm not disparaging staff that's gifted with many gifts, powerful gifts, mighty gifts of men. I'm not disparaging that. I'm thankful for those things and they have their place and we may benefit from that. But, But listen to me. They are nothing more than the servants of the Lord Jesus. And when we have the mindset that I can't grow in grace in the context of where Christ has put me or where I live and all of these various things, and therefore I have to have that in order to grow in grace, you miss the point of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1. You're missing it. Christ is not divided. He's not showing favoritism to them. and He's not ignoring the small, uh, weaker churches. No, he's there. His presence is there. He's growing those people up. They are his body too. They are his bride. They are his spiritual house too. And he loves them too. And he says, all who come, who trust in me, all who labor and work and pray and prepare themselves to come and to feast at the Lord's Supper, to come to feast at the spiritual word of God, I shall surely grow them up. I haven't forgot you. I don't care if it's a church on a a little bitty church on the tippy top of a mountain. He's there. That's what he says in Matthew 28. Go therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the very ends of the earth. To the very ends of the earth. The psalmist says, where can I go that I can be away from you. Can I go to the highest heavens? Can I go to the deepest hole in the ground? Can I go to the deepest part of the sea? Where can I go that you're not there with your people? Comforting them, ministering to them, educating them, teaching them, encouraging them, admonishing them. Now, brothers and sisters, I I guess... So Paul uses this argument of the nature of Christ, but he also inserts a second argument in there, and that's the argument of baptism. And again, I know we are really uh, 
toward the end of our lesson this morning, but I have to mention these words and then bring just two, two points of application. Very simple. But notice he even adds to this. He says, listen, has Christ been divided? Was not Paul? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let me just mention this about baptism. Why did Paul bring up baptism? Well, probably because they were somehow saying, well, my baptism is very valid and important because of who baptized me. (sighs) The important thing about baptism is not the one who does it. It's the one whose name that you are baptized in. It's the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It's it's what it represents. It's what it signifies. This washing of our sins, this communion that we are going to be brought in to the presence, if you will, and fellowship of Christ by being washed of our sins, being initiated into the kingdom. He says, were you initiated into the kingdom by my name? No, by Christ. You made a pact, an allegiance to Christ by your baptism. Listen to me, you bab- those of you baptized. I don't, it doesn't matter if you were baptized in an infant and you do not remember it. I can, I can speak to that too. Or baptized as an adult. You've been baptized in the name of Christ. You have, you have declared an allegiance to Jesus Christ. Not to Paul and not to any other minister to Christ and it is a great sin not to live up to your baptism covenant children those of you baptized as an infant you say well I don't remember it it's a great sin to leave your baptism and everything it signifies adults you made a decision to be baptized in the name of Jesus it's a great sin not to live up to that baptism that badge of loyalty, of commitment, of shared goals, responsibilities, and duties, of worldview, of all that it signifies in the covenant of grace. You said, yes, that is mine. I will own it. It's yours given to me, and I will own it, and I will walk with you. This is a sign and seal of our agreement and compact. (laughs) Baptism is a very important thing, but it's not the most important, but it's important. Let me say this about the baptism of children, and I think it bears needing to be said for our our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. The argument here of division is seen many times even in the home when a child gets upset with the parent. Well, I didn't choose to be in this family. God did. God made that choice for you. And God's all wise. He doesn't do anything that's not perfect. And so the family that you have been born in is the family that God wanted you born in. It doesn't matter that you don't like it. 
I didn't choose to be baptized. I've heard so many rebel children say this. It wasn't my decision to be baptized, no. It was the decision of the Lord Jesus Christ who commanded your parents to bring their children before you and have them baptized to have the sign of the covenant put on them like they had been doing, like God's people had been doing for thousands of years. God made that decision for you. And you should show your love for the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to it. All of this gender chaos, homosexuality is nothing more than slapping God in the face. I know you made me a man and ought to act like a man, but I'm going to act like a woman. It's just rebellion. It's just rebellion. Beloved, listen to me. Paul uses this whole idea. Were you not, you weren't baptized in the name of Paul. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. Serve him. Let me mention two things in application. Number one, these are easy. Number one, be ever so careful, beloved. Be ever so careful not to put men on a pedestal. That's number one. Can you remember that one? You can honor them. The Bible even teaches us to honor honorable people. But that honor has a limit. And that honor is never to surpass a reasonable limit and and trespass upon the glory of Christ. That's number one. Number two. And this warning is not for you. It's for me and any elder, future elder, and any minister that might listen to this sermon. Be ever so careful to minister, preach, teach, to live in such a way before the congregation that you draw them into yourself and not Jesus. It's not your church. It's not my church. Jesus is the one that has shed his blood for the church. And shame on any minister that seeks to have followers. Shame on them. Because the only followers that a ministry is to produce is followers of Christ. That doesn't mean there's not admonition. Doesn't mean there's not... Uh, a, a way that we hold each other accountable, that there is a true valid ministry. It's none of that. All that's true. Don't you put men on a pedestal or you'll be disappointed. And ministers, don't force, don't teach, don't move the congregation to put you on a pedestal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, O Lord, that it is your word that gives us light and understanding. And we pray, O Lord, that by your grace we would live up to it, that we would apply it, and that we would make it a practice into our lives. Now prepare us now to come to your supper, to come to this communion meal, that we may come by, with faith, 
that we may come with the expectation of communing with our Lord and Savior and, and being the recipients of his blessing and the continued growth in grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.